Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for August 1st, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film senior writer Ben Pearson, and joining me on today's episode are Slash Film managing editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello. All right, guys. So uh, first up, I just wanted to mention something really quickly that's not like a crazy news item, but something that I I figured our uh, listeners might enjoy is that J.J. Abrams has officially joined Twitter. Uh, Earlier today, he... Um, under the Twitter handle at JJ Abrams, of course, uh, tweeted the first photo, the first behind the scenes photo from Star Wars Episode 9. So I just wanted to throw that out up at the top of the show so people can follow him because I'm sure we're going to be seeing a glut of Star Wars behind the scenes content coming from that account in the uh, the days and weeks and months to come. So, just but why, to... Ben? Why would JJ Abrams join Twitter? Didn't didn't Ryan Johnson warn him that it's a cesspool <laughs> of scum and villainy? <laughs> he really should have. But uh, and and I kind of wonder about that. I wonder if this is something that was like mandated by Disney and Lucasfilm. Do you think that they that there are like contractual you know because like and i don't mean to derail this conversation before you even really get started but i remember um we were talking a little while ago about how some news came out that like dwayne the rock johnson gets x number of dollars it might be like a million dollars per tweet or something chris do you remember you remember this uh it wasn't too long ago 
I believe he gets $10 billion a tweet. <laughs> that sounds right. That sounds exactly <laughs> factually accurate. Uh, but yeah, it's like anytime he tweets about a, a movie or something he's, he's involved in, and this is like a practice that's been going on for a long time, but I'm, I'm wondering if there are like contractual requirements for, um, you know, visible uh, people, you know, actors and, and uh auteur filmmakers like Abrams. Um, I, I don't know if any of us can answer that question or if any of our listeners can. Maybe any of our industry insider listeners might be able to send us an email and let us know if they've encountered anything like that. Um, I would be very interested to know the answer to that question. You can send us an email at peter at slashfilm.com if you know the answer. Uh, but let's move on and, and really get into the meat of uh, this episode. And that uh, I want to really start with a news story for a movie that never happened, but one that sounds really intriguing nonetheless. Chris, tell us about a potential Demolition Man sequel. Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, in case you're unaware of what this is, uh, Demolition Man is a film from the 90s where Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes uh, get uh, cryogenically frozen. Uh, Sylvester Stallone's a cop. Wesley Snipes is a criminal. They get frozen, and uh, they both wake up in the future. And the future has become this very kind-hearted, super passive world. And unfortunately, Wesley Snipes is still crazy and deadly. So... He starts running amok, and they need Sylvester Stallone to stop him because he's the only uh, cop who knows how to do violence anymore. <laughs> so um, it was a uh, it was an okay film. It's entertaining, and it, it has a bit of uh, a cult following still. And it was a hit at the time, but unlike most Sylvester Stallone hits, it never got a sequel. And as it turns out. There almost was a sequel, uh, and it sounds kind of wild. So Daniel Waters, who co-wrote the film, uh, appeared on a podcast recently, the Projection Booth podcast, and he revealed that uh, after Demolition Man came out, Joel Silver, who is a a famous producer who produced Demolition Man, came to Daniel Waters and said he had an idea for a sequel, and that sequel would be Sylvester Stallone reconnects with his long-lost daughter, who is now older than him because he's been cryogenically frozen and the daughter would be played by Meryl Streep. Uh, And Daniel Waters basically said, all right, look, if you can get Meryl Streep to do this, I'm in. And obviously we know that didn't happen. Um, It's not clear on how far this went. It's not clear if Joel Silver actually put an offer out to Meryl Streep's agent and said, Hey, does Meryl Streep want to be in demolition man too? I, uh, I somehow doubt that happened. And if it did happen, I have a feeling she, uh, shook her head no and laughed and, and it didn't happen. But so uh, there, you know, that that's a fun what if. We could have gotten a Demolition Man sequel starring Meryl Streep as Sylvester Stallone's daughter, but it didn't happen. Jacob, would you have wanted to see something like that? In the 90s, no, because Meryl Streep of the 90s was still Meryl Streep being serious and and delivering all these iconic performances. But Meryl Streep today, the Meryl Streep, the Meryl Streep who starred in Mamma Mia and Devil Wears Prada, who seems to have reached the I don't give a crap, I'm going to have fun stage of her career, I want to see that Meryl Streep <laughs> Demolition Man sequel. So make it now. Not <laughs> And have them both be roughly the same age now. Who cares? Just make it now. I mean... Yeah, I'm totally down for that. That sounds ridiculous. Uh, All right, so let's move on to our next item, and that is that a prequel to The Sandlot is in the works at Fox. Jacob, what's going on with this? All right, well, it's the 25th anniversary of The Sandlot this year, the uh, really beloved movie about kids in the 60s playing baseball and 
encountering a, a dog in the, in the neighboring yard that turns out that they think it's a monster. And it's a really sweet, charming movie I haven't seen in years. I don't want to watch it again because I'm afraid it's, it's not going to live up to it, my childhood memories. Uh, but uh, it's being celebrated. Uh, the uh, 20th Century Fox is going to celebrate this by uh, making a prequel to it. <laughs> and this is a this is odd for a number of reasons. We'll get those in a second. Uh, but uh, David and Mickey Evans, the original film's writer and director, uh, will co-write the script with first-time writer Austin Reynolds. And there are no real uh, plot details released yet. Uh, but here's why I find this baffling. It's the same reason why I found that, uh, yesterday's news of a uh, 24 prequel series by young Jack Bauer baffling, which is that like the first season of 24, um, Sandlot the movie is a prequel story, where we are watching the origin story of these of these characters who grew up to be one a baseball star, one a baseball announcer. We are watching an extended flashback bookended by where these kids went. So this prequel clearly can't be about, can't be about these kids because they all meet and have their coming together and their origin story in the movie itself. So the prequel will have to be about other people in the neighborhood, the dog, other characters. But all that undercuts what made the sound on the Sandlot. So I don't understand why this isn't a sequel. I don't understand why they don't try to uh, bring back a lot of those same kids as, as the same actors or new actors and have them all reunite uh, 25 years later in the 1980s since that's so hot on TV right now. I do not understand this story. Is uh, Ben, do you have any affection for the Sandlot? Do you, do you even see what the appeal of a prequel this uh, movie could be? I definitely have affection for The Sandlot. I grew up uh, playing Little League Baseball, so I, I loved all of those baseball movies that seemed to permeate the 1990s, this and Rookie of the Year and, and all those kinds of films. Um, I totally agree. I feel like they should bring back that cast because if you're going to do this whole throwback thing of like, hey, remember this movie that came out in the 90s? You might as well, you know, gear it toward and, and give the, the people who remember that movie something to latch onto, which is the return of those characters instead of, you know, like, for, for, I feel like for the, the name brand recognition aspect of it to mean anything, the intended audience has to understand and, and be aware of where it came from. And I, I'm not sure that younger crowds know what this is. And also it's it's like... I feel like baseball movies in particular and, and just sports movies in general have probably have fallen off a lot in recent years because it's more difficult to make those movies and market them to international audiences, which as we know is like, you know, becoming increasingly more, uh, more of a requirement for any movie to make its money back these days. So yeah, there's a lot about this that I'm, I'm sort of confused about. I did see somebody on Twitter, I think it was maybe Esquire.com was, um, was talking about how if this is going to be a prequel, it should follow James Earl Jones's character, and he he's like the uh, the kind old man who lives next door, who's the owner of the Beast, this big dog that the kids face, and he basically basically only pops up in the movie for like ten minutes or something at the very end. Um, but uh, so like maybe they could do something with that. But yeah, I totally agree. I feel like you know there's no way that these kids can be a part of this movie. So then, what is the Sandlot if not? their relationship it's not just the location you know i, I don't know chris do you did yeah. you grow up watching the sandlot do you have any thoughts about this i did like the sandlot when i was a kid but yeah this is a terrible idea i don't know uh you know like you both said a sequel would make more sense a prequel i i really don't get it i don't know <laughs> all right actually what they should do is have a uh, sequel where all the adults all the grown-up kids 
try to force all of their kids to be friends at the Sandlot, which would mimic how this generation tries to force all their kids to like what they liked and make it a meta commentary. <laughs> I'd watch great. that. Yeah, yeah, I like that idea. Uh, all right, well, let's talk about a sequel that uh, actually does seem like a, a, a valid idea, and that's Top Gun 2. Uh, Chris, tell us about the latest casting news for this movie. Uh, yeah, so Glenn Powell, who's an actor in um, Everybody Wants Some and in Netflix's uh, Set It Up, was one of um, three actors who was up for the role of Goose's son in Top Gun 2. The other two were um, Miles Teller and Nicholas Holt. And ultimately, Miles Teller won out, even though it seemed like the internet was really pulling for Glenn Powell. And Glenn Powell uh, jokingly commented on losing the part on Twitter, and it was all, you know, all fun, and we all thought, well, that's the last we'll hear of this. But as it turns out, Glenn Powell actually is going to be in the movie after all. Um, He's not playing Goose's son. We don't know who he's playing, but uh, according to the report, Tom Cruise and the producers were so impressed with his audition that they added him to the film, and they're actually beefing up the minor role he's been cast in. So there you go. Everything worked out for everyone except Nicholas Holt. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I so my first reaction to this is – I feel like we're going to um, I feel like they're going to immediately regret this decision because by putting Glenn Powell in this movie, especially right next to Miles Teller, who, as you mentioned, is cast as Goose's son, it's going to make the disparity between those two uh, actors so much clearer. It's like it's uh, for me. I feel like unless Miles Teller does something to completely blow blow me away and like wildly change my perception of his abilities as an actor and the ability of, that he possesses to step into a franchise like this, I feel like I'm gonna walk out of this movie going, I can't believe Glenn Powell was in that movie and playing the wrong role. Uh, d- do you guys think that there's any other outcome for this? I can't. I, I like Miles Teller, but he's not a charismatic guy. Glenn Powell is charismatic. People are going to love what character he plays, which makes me wonder if Goose Jr., son of Goose, is not going to be a wild, charismatic guy. I wonder if he's going to be the more reserved, uptight guy, maybe to bounce off uh, Maverick, played by Tom Cruise, and whoever Glenn Powell is playing. So my, part of me is wondering if maybe this is a canny choice as opposed to, you know, miscasting, but we shall see. And as you were saying that, now I'm just wondering if maybe Glenn Powell is going to be the Iceman to uh, Goose's son's Maverick, you know? Like, uh, I guess, yeah, like you are saying, sort of lean into that disparity. Um, that could be an interesting thing. Have him be like the uh, the gunner or whatever the, the term was that, that Goose was for Maverick in the first movie. Um, all right, so let's move on to our next option, and that or um, news story rather, and that is, uh, <laughs> they're, guys, they're making an "It's a Small World" movie. Walt Disney Company is actually putting time and money into this. Uh, it's based on the theme park ride, which if you've ever been to Disneyland and, and ridden the ride, I mean, you may have just skipped over it <laughs> in the lines and all this. It's sort of tucked away into a, a back corner of the theme park, but. It's the ride where basically it's a boat ride where you're just sort of like floating down a river that shows all these different cultures all around the world singing the same song over and over again. It's very catchy and it gets stuck in your head and it's this crazy thing. I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about, but there's no story in this thing. So Peter recently spoke with John Turtletob, who is the director of The Meg, the upcoming shark movie with Jason Statham. And Turtletob years ago was attached to direct... Uh, this it's a small world movie and he uh, Peter asked Turtletop about the film and and Turtletop said that he's still attached to direct this movie and uh, I'll read his quote here 
He said, I took my daughter on the ride this weekend, actually, last weekend. We're still, anyone who says making a movie based on the small world ride is ridiculous is completely right, which is why it's really tricky to figure it out, because there's a way where it's not ridiculous, when, in fact, it's pretty clever and delightful. We're working on the clever and delightful version, and that's going to take more time than the really ridiculous bad version. And Peter asked about what the logline was, and he said, I think we know it's very emotional because it's a world of laughter and a world of tears, which are lyrics from the the earworm song that happens during the, the ride. So that's basically it. But, I mean, Jacob, I know you're a big theme park guy. Do you think there's any way, I, I mean, just the, the notion of making a clever and delightful version of It's a Small World. I, I don't see how that's possible, but maybe I'm short-sighted. Do you, do you feel like there's any potential in this property to, to be adapted into a, a movie? No, not at all. <laughs> uh, and I just want to point out that, like, before I go on into this, there's no understanding what an important accomplishment It's a Small World is. Walt Disney and his team designed it for the 1964 World Fair. It was imported to Disneyland, Disney World, all their Disney parks. Uh, it is it essentially invented the modern boat ride. If you get on a, on a boat ride, a theme park where you're on, not on a track, but in a flume and the water is pushing you through the ride, this ride invented that. It is, it is a technical accomplishment that was years ahead of its time, super important. It's still charming and cute to this day, even though people like to pretend they're above it. It is one of the defining pinnacles of theme park design. But you're right, there is no story here. And unlike Pirates of the Caribbean, which had a has a natural dramatic hook. You're, here are pirates. Pirates are bad. They're attacking this town. Or Haunted Mansion. You were in a house full of ghosts. Do they mean you harm or they just want to party? Uh, even Jungle Cruise. You are in the jungle on a boat surrounded by animals. There is inherent conflict in that, and that's why Dwayne Johnson is currently starring in a film version of that that's being shot. But this is literally a, a UNICEF-sponsored uh, ride built for a world fair over 50 years ago where the point of the ride was to raise money for children by displaying a world without conflict in a world where children are united despite language barriers through song. That is wonderful. That is charming. That is not a movie. And whatever version uh, Turner Hall is cooking up here, uh, it may be something, but it's not going to be a small world. Uh, and, <laughs> and I don't know what, that, what that's going to be because maybe sometimes a Disney theme park ride is just a theme park ride. And they should go, you know what, go to Big, go, you know what, go to Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, another ride that has no plot until you look into Disney lore and discover that it does. Like you dig deep in every single Disney ride, and so many of them have hidden stories and hidden lore and hidden secrets and hidden characters. And so many of them are built. Even Space Mountain, which, which was in development for years, has a secret story. If you actually like dig into it, the, the notes that, the, that the, all the designers made years and years ago. It's Small World does not. It's one of the very few Disney rides that's not based in a movie that has no actual narrative function. So Turtletop, I, th I think he has great answers here. I think he's um, a really nice guy when you read his full interview in a few days uh he comes off as like a real gem of a human being i want to talk to him he seems like a lot of fun i do not think this movie's ever going to happen and i think turtle top probably knows it <laughs> all right so let's move on to uh, terminator 6 we got a first official look at the women of this movie this morning and uh, i know we're not probably not going to dig into this too much but I, I thought it would be uh, cool to talk about so chris tell us about this you wrote up this photo for the site uh, yes, yeah, so the the, po the photo uh, depicts Natalia Reyes, Mackenzie Davis, and Linda Hamilton, and uh, much like that dark universe photo that came out a year ago, it's clear that uh, all three of these women were not in the same photo at the same time, and they were photoshopped together. <laughs> um, I don't want to be too hard on this because, you know, it's a promotional photo. It's not like, you know, it's not a scene from the movie, uh, uh, and it's cool to see Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor again with, you know, 
all decked out and Mackenzie Davis has uh, very impressive biceps and it, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a okay first look at the film, but it doesn't really tell us really anything about the film. You know, what, what we know about the film is it's basically taking the same approach as the new Halloween movie, whereas, you know, it's focusing only on the good movies, Terminator one and two, and it's ignoring all the sequels. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things where it's like a reboot slash continuation, which seems to be like the new trend for sequels now. Yeah, and you can read more about the plot and what we know about the film so far in the article that we'll link in the show notes. I, I feel like Paramount has definitely learned their lesson, though, because I don't know if you guys remember. I'm sure you do. The the photo shoot for Terminator Genesis that uh, I think that was like Entertainment Weekly or something. <laughs> Those photos that came out before that movie and before the trailer dropped for that movie are so comical that they still get passed around as jokes today. So, I I mean, this photo is, is like miles beyond anything that we saw in that photo shoot, uh, which is just so over the top and cartoonish and, and really ridiculous. It's like everyone holding a gun and screaming, basically. Um, this is uh, is a lot more reserved. And yes, Linda Hamilton looks pretty badass in it. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to mention that so you guys can uh, can check that out in the link in the show notes. Uh, let's talk about uh, the last news story of the day, and that is that a Super Pets movie is in development. Chris, I've never heard of Super Pets. What What is this? What's happening? So um, various DC characters uh, have their own pets. There's, you know, Crypto, which is um, Superman's dog. Uh, there's Ace the Bat Hound, which is Batman's dog. Uh, there's a um, uh, there's a Bat Cow. I'm not making that up. That's a real thing. <laughs> Batman had his own cow. Uh, there's a Super Horse. There's all sorts. Of, there's all sorts of animals. So there there was a comic back in the day called. Um, it was called Legion of the Super Pets. And there was also an animated series uh, somewhat recently called Super Pets. And uh, Warner Brothers in DC, who have not had the best luck when it comes to their live action uh, comic book films, are uh, apparently trying anything at this point. So they're making a animated Super Pets movie with um, Jared Stern, who wrote the Lego Batman movie, is going to write and direct it. And obviously this is going to be, you know, geared towards kids, but um, it, it's clear that, you know, DC has been having a lot more success with their lighthearted kid fare than their very serious adult stuff. Because, you know, everyone loved the Lego Batman movie and even the recently released uh, Teen Titans Go to the Movies has had surprisingly great reviews. So maybe, you know, they're learning that they should focus more on uh, family friendly, friendly fare. So they're doing this now. Uh, Jacob, I know you're a big comics guy. Have you ever encountered uh, this bat cow or any of these other? <laughs> I mean, I've heard of Crypto the Super Dog, but have you heard of any of these other more uh, obscure <laughs> super pets? I'm, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, most of these pets were created during the Silver Age of comic books, which is uh, sort of a, a nebulously the 50s through the uh, 70s-ish, um, sort of between the... Um, introductory years um and, and but before comic kind of came of age and became darker so to speak in the 80s and this is the silliest years for dc and marvel this is the year years when um everybody had a dog and everybody had a horse and everybody had a pet and um so i, I think there's two directions to go with this uh one is you make it a super silly fun family-friendly thing and that's awesome that's great um go with it um kids like kids are superheroes too um but i'm also reminded that um there are um, very recently, I guess maybe about five or six years ago, there was a really smart reinvention of, of Crypto, Superman's dog, where instead of being just you know a dog with a cape, 
they had this whole flashback issue. I think it was when Grant, Grant Morrison was writing Action Comics, um, where it was revealed that uh, Cal L's family dog was defending the family in a science experiment gone wrong and they trapped in the Phantom Zone. And then years later, when Superman's an adult, he frees his family dog. And so it's like this alien dog who's really badass. And that was the reinvention of Crypto as being like a, a way for this um, hyper-intelligent alien dog with superpowers to exist uh, in the current continuity without being just a, a dog of powers. So uh, there, there's ways you can actually take these, these animals and maybe have a, make them a bit more grounded, a bit more serious. But um, the way you cut it, it's still silly. Uh, but I guess to address Bat Cow, though, Bat Cow is actually very recent. And I'm sure someone who's, who's smarter than me uh, will maybe put me off and, and correct here. But I think there's another Grant Morrison creation when he was writing uh, Batman before he was writing Action Comics, uh, where uh, literally uh, the current Robin, who is Damian Wayne, Batman's son, uh, literally ad adopts a cow and won't let anybody har harm it. And for years, you, you saw Bat Cow just chilling in the corner of the Bat Cave eating hay. And it was just, uh, <laughs> it doesn't even have powers. He was just there. Uh, but so I would love to see a, 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 a movie where all these superpowered animals fighting crime and Bat Cow is hanging out. That would be so great. Just have him as like an Easter egg in the background. That's uh, that's the kind of ridiculous stuff that I love that that can really only happen in comic books. But hopefully they translate something like that to the big screen. Uh, all right. So let's move into our feature presentation. And that is Mondo has released a fight club card game and jacob i know you're a big uh, board gamer tabletop gamer all of that stuff and you're a big uh, mondo aficionado and i just wanted to give you a spotlight to talk about this for a second you wrote this really cool feature that that also features uh, or includes a bunch of other card games that movie fans might love so tell us about this fight club card game and maybe give us like a rundown of one or two other games that uh, that might be similar that people might dig yeah this is uh, mondo's second board game following their adaptation of the thing that came out last year and Fight Club, it's actually called Fight Club The Home Game. I'm gonna, and I'm going to read the uh, quick description from Mondo's site. Uh, Take on the role of either the narrator or Tyler Durden as you play a game of tug-of-war with dual-use cards available in a shared draw row. The narrator side feels the need to collect, gather, and nest, while Tyler's side enables destruction, mayhem, and ultimately letting go by hitting bottom on a shared tracker both players struggle to dominate. And this is a, it's a deck builder game. For those of you who are unfamiliar, and I go into greater length in the article if you're interested, a deck builder game is a very popular genre of game where um, you start with a very basic hand of cards, and there's a shared shop of cards in the middle of the table. And all players can use resources to buy cards to make their change their deck up, add more powers, uh, try to create combos of various cards. And some games are very simple and straightforward, like Dominion is very popular for those of you who know board games, a game like Creating Medieval Kingdom. And some of them um, sort of build off that and become more complex. Um, but so this is Mondo working in a um, very, very popular genre of game. And I really like this concept because when Mondo first announced they're making a Fight Club card game, I pictured this sort of take that card game where like you're fighting in an underground pit and this card's a punch, this card's a jab, this is a kick. And I thought, oh, that sounds unpleasant. I don't want that. That's not even what the point of Fight Club is. But the fact that this is a um, two player uh, card game where the, the table space is the mind of one person, you're both battling for control of it. Uh, with, you know, the chaos versus civilization con conflict of the movie, actually understands the people at Mondo understand Fight Club more than most of Fight Club's fans do. And that's, <laughs> really, that's really interesting. I mean, the caveats I'll use here is that uh, Mondo's first game, um, The Thing, I like it a lot. Uh, our own Peter Sreda, another board game aficionado, does not. And he thinks it's a broken game. I think it's a flawed game. But um, it was definitely a case where Mondo valued theme over a truly co coherent, flawless game design. And they entered into a very crowded space, the thing. The thing was another in a long line of 
hidden trader games where one player is trying to, trying to betray the group and destroy the game. And now they're entering another crowd space, which is deck builders. The problem, the problem with this is that these are game genres that are so crowded with near-perfect games that if you aren't near-perfect, you're going to get lost. And the, they, have the, they have the Mondo name, and that's going to go a long way toward maybe attracting people who aren't board gamers, who just mm-hmm. want the Mondo thing. Um, and Peter's written about this before, and we can, we can read that in the show notes. But um, Mondo has done a poor job of reaching out to the gaming community. Um, things that are like commonplace for other board games, like other other board games would have had a gameplay video up a year ago, would have had pictures of the cards and board up a year ago. They would have YouTubers who explain rules and like and like do game reviews and playthroughs would have had this game in their hands months ago and would have been building up hype for it. They would um, be at gaming conventions showing off, but Mondo is not. And they first they first announced these official details about a month before it comes out. This is really unusual and unheard of in the board game space, which is very competitive and it's always and expensive too. These designer games are expensive. So it's, it's a case where this sounds fantastic. This sounds like a really cool thing, but Mondo is not as great a company as they are and as amazing as the products they put out, especially on the poster side. Um, I really hope they see this opportunity to really touch base with what board gamers expect from board game companies these days because they're not doing it. I'm I'm curious if, if if this makes sense to Ben and Chris because I know you guys really aren't big board gamers. Is this is this something that's I'm obsessing about that makes sense or is it just me talking nonsense? I mean no that that all of that I'm glad you were on because I feel like all of that is is like very necessary context because I didn't know any of this stuff so I feel like I at least have a, a handle on what's going on here. But Chris, I'm interested. You know, does this sound like something that you would actually be interested in playing? I know you're a big David Fincher fan. Does the the fact that this is a Fight Club game uh, carry any weight with you? And I can't really, I mean, I'll be honest, I can't really imagine you sitting down and playing a card game. It just doesn't seem like, from what I know of your personality, that that's something that you do. But tell me if I'm wrong. Are you interested in this? Um, Is it for two players? I can't remember. If it's for two players, I'm vaguely interested in it because the only time I play a, a games, it's like, you know, with my wife, we don't, we don't have like big groups of friends we play games with. So anytime there's like a two player game, I'm vaguely interested in it. But as with video games, uh, any sort of board game or card game, I tend to play it for about like 10 or 15 minutes. And then I'm like, all right, what else can I do? Cause I'm <laughs> not in the mood to do this. So I, I just, I don't think I'm built for gaming really. Okay. Uh, it, Jacob, do you know the answer to that? Like, how many players are intended for this game? Like, what the uh, ideal number is? It is a two-player-only game, which oh. is actually fine by me, because sometimes you'll play games that, like, unnecessarily add on three or four players um, just to get those numbers in the box, and they break the game design. So this game kind of admitting, yeah, it's two players only. is actually a sign that's a solid design, and they're not trying to stretch that number just to sell more copies cool so that's fight club the home game and that's coming out in september uh really quickly before we go uh, jacob just tell us about maybe one of the other games that you mentioned here in this article that might be good for people uh, who are also you know big movie fans who might uh find something interesting to like here right. rather than one i'm gonna do three in one sentence uh, <laughs> okay these are, these are all deck building games like fight club uh so if you like the idea of building up a deck of cards and uh, building one strategically and defeating your opponents. These, these all work. These are all three of my favorites. Uh, Arctic Scavengers, for fans of Mad Max, you are building a tribe of survivors in the apocalypse and you battle each other for resources. It's great. Uh, Xeno Shift Onslaught, terrible title, but it's cooperative. Everybody works together at the same time against the game. So you're not building a deck in isolation. You're constantly talking and constantly trying to find ways to defend your base against aliens. It's very much inspired by Starship Troopers and lots of chaos. It's very fun because it's cooperative, very hard. Uh, Mystic Veil, 
super relaxing, incredibly chill game of being a druid, trying to bring life back to a dead valley. You plant trees, you raise animals, and instead of building a deck, you build cards. Each of your cards is inside its own plastic sleeve, and you insert transparent upgrades inside the sleeve to transform what your card looks like, and therefore uh, it's unlike any deck builder I've ever played. All three of these are great. Uh, and if you don't like Fight Club, uh, but like the idea of, of a game like this, uh, these three, you can't go wrong with them. Awesome. Wow, that's very uh, comprehensive. Uh, so, yeah, you guys can find more about uh, all the stories we mentioned today uh, at Slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes. Before we end this podcast, where can people find more of your work online? Jacob, let's start with you. I'm on Slashfilm.com every single day, and I'm on Twitter, where I'm at Jacob S. Hall. Chris? I am also on Slashfilm, and I'm on Twitter at Evangelista 413 you can find me writing at SlashFilm.com as well. I am on Twitter at Ben Pears, and you can subscribe to Slash Film Daily on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. The show is pub- published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find at the site. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com, and make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That truly helped us out a ton. Tell your friends, spread the word about the show, and we'll talk to you next time.